Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I think you're interesting. You know, since we launched this show, I have wanted to have a musician on, a real touring musician who records albums and then goes around playing her music for legions of adoring fans. But as you can imagine, the life of a musician doesn't leave a ton of time for podcasting with me, so we're only just now getting around to it. But what a treat, then, that it is to have in our very first episode in this regard, Nico Case, the brilliant singer-songwriter whose songs and albums have been among my favorites for nearly 20 years. Her stunningly versatile voice vaults across octaves like having such a massive vocal range is something you, too, could do if you practiced enough. And let me tell you, I have practiced enough, and you cannot... Albums like 2006's Fox Confessor Brings the Flood, 2009's Middle Cyclone, and 2013's The Worst Things Get, The Harder I Fight tackle the weird chaos of being alive in the 21st century and what Nico dubs the quote-unquote mythology of the human heart. But she's not just a solo artist. She also records with the indie pop supergroup The New Pornographers, another favorite of mine, and she released an album with Katie Lang and Laura Veers as a kind of Voltron of great female singer-songwriters in 2016. Now, Nico Case is back with her first solo album in five years, the aptly named Hell On. It's one of my favorites of hers, which is saying a lot. Nico joined me to talk about the album, her career, and her growing realization about what it means to be part of a community of women in the music industry. It was a great treat to talk to her. I, I seriously was just so honored and blown away, and I hope that you will stick around. Nico, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So... I love your new album. It's called Hell On. And in the opening song, also called Hell On, there's this moment where you sort of, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like this this beautiful shout, this beautiful scream. On the album, of course, it's great. I had the pleasure of seeing you in concert, and you did it live. And I'm just wondering, like, what kind of regimen you have to do to be able to do that every night in concert, night in and night out. Uh, well, I make sure I sleep a lot. <laughs> and I I don't smoke or drink. or I'm pretty dull. I think you got to be yeah. pretty dull. But yeah. not not really. That's just me personally. Everybody's different. So <laughs> for me personally, it's about sleeping. We've never had a musician on the show, and I'm really? excited to have you. Yeah, you're you're our first like. Well, we had a guy who Aww. writes Broadway musicals way I'm back honored. at the start. Thank you. Yeah, but but so what I'm kind of I'm always kind of curious about like the process of songwriting, and I know it's different for everybody, but I know nothing about it beyond like when I was a kid, I tried to write songs and was terrible at it. Um, so I'm wondering like when you start when you sit down to write a song. Or when you start to think about a song, like how does it come to you? Is it is it like um, uh, lyrics, or is it an image, or is it like a melody? Like like where where does your brain sort of go first when you're writing a song? Well, I'd say about three quarters of the time, it's probably lyrics first, like in a way mm-hmm. that people write poetry. But sometimes I will just find myself singing something in the car or while I'm doing dishes or vacuuming. Vacuuming is because I believe. My vacuum cleaner makes a sound in F sharp. And <laughs> so, I don't know, you can be influenced by the weirdest things. But sometimes I sing little snippets into the recorder, and then yeah. I just put them all together later. I just yeah. kind of figure out what seems the right thing for this or that. There's a lot of collaging that happens 
like, do you remember sort of um, a time when something just sort of came to you like a lyric and then you were like, I know this is a thing and I just need to figure out where it goes with everything else? Well, that happens so much that I, I can't, I don't know if I could isolate one particular time. Sometimes a line will seem really pertinent to me and it'll hang around for a long time until it finds Mm -hmm. the right song to go into. I think the song Winnie, I I really wanted to write something with warships called She in it because I was looking at lots of historical nautical paintings and, you know, warships are always referred to as She and it's really bizarre, especially since things to do with war, warfare, battle are usually considered masculine things. To me, this album sort of feels like a meditation on what it is to be a woman at this moment in history, which is let's say a complicated one in that in those terms and i'm wondering like uh, how you sort of embrace those contradictions like the idea of warships being called she as you were working on writing hell on well i would say that the record isn't a meditation on being a woman but that's uh, that's gonna, fine <laughs> no no it's okay like it's going to come in there because i'm a woman and that's what right right you know it's it's obvious that i am one but i don't write for women per se. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there are moments, of course, but I, I do write for everyone. And I like writing that's a little more invisible as far as right. gender is concerned. But the song Winnie in particular is very female driven, I guess. But, you know, it, it's about the balance of masculinity and femininity and, uh, right. you know, the rediscovering of women in history who've been buried well, no, that thing that you just mentioned about being interested in the contrast between masculine and feminine, like a, a, a very famous song of yours from an earlier album, Man, from uh, the album released in 2013. Like that's another song that's sort of about the contradiction between masculine and feminine. Like the opening lyric of that song is, I'm a man, and of course it's it's sung by you. So we're immediately into that contradiction. So what intrigues you about that idea of of the masculine and the feminine, and then also like sort of the idea that that gender is, um, you know, a construct. There's this weird feeling that people are raised with that women are somehow a subspecies of mankind, Mm. which, Mm -hmm. you know, rules a lot of what we do. But really, the possibility of masculine and feminine is in every person. And so kind of striking the right balance between those two things and honoring both of those things is 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 a very healthy place to go. So I think I'm a lot looser about it in the songs. Like I'm not thinking too hard about it, but I mean, there's a certain not wanting to ask permission to do things and deciding that you can give yourself permission. That's a very freeing moment in a person's life. You really got to believe it. But when you believe it, it works. (laughs) Do you remember a moment when you sort of realized you didn't have to ask for permission, that you could give yourself that permission? Well, I think that it was more that I realized I had been doing it for a long time. Like, I didn't even realize I was doing it. But, 
you know, when you're in the scramble to get something accomplished, especially when it involves a lot of other people, like getting a tour together, getting a record together, you can look back and go, oh, I'm already doing that. What? Why, why did I think that I wasn't capable? Or why did it take me so long to even say I was a musician? Like musician seemed like a very sacred thing to me, and I didn't think I was worthy of that. And then I think one year in my 30s, I don't remember what year, I, I think I had to write it on my tax return. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> now that is legitimate. I am now, I'm, <laughs> which is kind of a hilarious way to realize, like, you are qualified to do the job you're here to do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but it made me think about a lot beyond that. I was, I definitely had to reassess, like, oh, I need to give myself a little more credit here. Because I've been doing it the whole time. Why do you think that musician to you felt like a, a thing, like a mantle you couldn't pick up until you wrote it on your tax returns? Well, I grew up in the 80s during the Reagan years and art and music was taken out of schools. And there was a lot of pushback against people who wanted to do something creative with their lives. You know, art and music was considered a pipe dream and the word pipe dream was used a lot and, you know, it wasn't considered practical. It was considered a flight of fancy, you know. And then if, if you were a woman on top of that, there just weren't a lot of women in the top 40 that I was seeing. You know what I mean? That doesn't mean that there weren't women in other places. It just means what I was exposed to, you know. There, there just weren't that many of us getting the accolades that we should have as even just working musicians, let alone celebrated ones. So I think there was a lot of things that made me feel like that was kind of an unattainable title. Were there women that you looked up to at the, when you were growing up that were sort of um, in pop or rock? That oh, yeah, Heart. I stuff. thought Heart yeah. were the greatest thing on earth. So They're fantastic, yeah. They are. And then, you know, my grandparents listened to country music and, you know, especially like when I was like in my teen, my early teens, when I started getting really into punk rock, you know, I, I kind of was at the later stages where it was like super masculine kind of hardcore bands and there weren't really women anywhere. And when women would show up on the scene in a band, people would literally say dumb things like, oh, girls can't rock. God, it's stupid. That band sucks because she sucks. Or And it was really blatant and and creepy and weird. And But then country music had this uh, this reputation of being super sexist. But... Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn were wearing guitars and writing songs and singing them while playing guitars. So it was it was really I thought it was such a bizarre viewpoint. I mean, don't get me wrong, country music definitely like every other has its roadblocks and its glass ceiling, etc, but it was definitely really confusing and I myself remember realizing what an asshole I was because I loved the cramps, for example, and yeah. mm -hmm. poison Ivy was on the cover on the back cover credited as being the guitar player. And for some reason I never put two and two together that she was in the band. Like mm. I was such a program sexist myself that I did not. And I felt really ashamed when I realized that. And I realized I really needed to reach out and figure out, out what the hell was going on. Were you at that time when you were like a teenager, were you trying to write your own music or did that come later? Mm, when I was a teenager, I was just kind of trying to get by. 
Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I played in bands starting around 17. I started playing drums. I was pretty shy, but I was a pretty aggressive kid, so mm. kind of made sense to hide behind the drums and to do something a little more aggressive. I had a lot of energy. Well, what drew you to music? Was it always just a thing you were you were interested in? Yeah, it, I never wasn't drawn to it, so I don't I don't know when it started. Mm-hmm. I kind of mm-hmm. noticed the obsession right around the the um, MTV years. I think I was seeing more women than I was hearing on the radio. Like, you know, I, I would actually see like Grace Jones and Tina Turner, and I was like, "Wow, this is so." awesome and then there was all kinds of other stuff in the beginning too like when mtv started you know it kind of had a little more going on than the radio did but still not enough but it 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 still opened some doors like there's nobody like grace jones and i'm so glad i got to get her into my groundwater that way what do you think it was about mtv i hear i've heard that i've read that i should say from a lot of kind of artists in this this generation of indie rock, alt country, whatever you want to call it, like that MTV was like this sort of seismic event in terms of like being able to see music. And I guess as somebody who's always had MTV, I'm like, what was that event like in terms of like a dividing line of like, oh, okay, I, I this makes sense to me in a way that like the radio maybe didn't. Well, they started a music video network without very many music videos. There was a very small amount of them. So if you could make one, you could get it on there because they needed content so badly. So it was a pretty interesting melange of stuff in the beginning. And there was stuff that you wouldn't hear on the radio unless you live somewhere that had like specific independent stations. So, you know, there are people that I've never heard from again that had like one song on MTV and you're like, what? (laughs) but I mean and I liked I liked the VJs and I thought it was cool that there were ladies talking about music who really knew what they were talking about and I'm sure something about Martha Quinn and Nina Blackwood made me go oh yeah music experts of course yeah Yeah, I mean I was 10 I was 10 years old when it started so it was a good thing so when you were um when you were doing sort of your your early uh sort of early in your career, like, tell me a little bit about, I don't want to say escaping your influences, but incorporating your influences into like your own work. Because I think that all of us, like, I don't write music, but I write other stuff. And like, I directly, I sort of distinctly remember when I started to realize I was writing my own stuff and not just like trying to copy my influences. So did you feel sort of a similar moment with that in your own music? I don't know if I was trying to separate myself I think that I started sounding more like myself when I started playing guitar even very rudimentarily if that's a word um I think I was about 30 and I started playing guitar and I realized I was more in charge of my phrasing and my cadence and uh I realized I didn't necessarily want to go verse chorus verse chorus I wanted to tell a story and maybe the chorus wouldn't repeat or and you know I guess that's where an influence comes in early queen records I love and I love that Freddie Mercury will do a thing where the greatest hook in the song will only happen one time 
and you go back and listen again and again, especially like Queen 2 or like Sheer Heart Attack. There's a lot of those moments on those. And it's it's written like classical music where things happen that don't happen again. It's a, it's not cyclical. It's a story that's happening. It's more linear. I'm always interested by the idea of telling a story through music or, or through a song. Like, how do you make that work? Because I, I feel like you have so little space. Like, you have at most like five minutes to tell a full story. But people who do it well do it really well. And I, I think you're among them. I think it comes from leaving it open enough to where you're your audience can come in and kind of wear it like a vest yeah. and make it part of their, you know, they get to insert themselves in there somehow. Like they get to insert their own details or I try to make things not too anchored to one time or place. Like I, maybe I'll have telephones, but I won't have like pagers or cell phones, for example, or internet or so. I don't know. There's something about certain technologies I leave out that leaves things more open-ended. And that's such a small example, but, and that's not like a rule where that's how you do those things. I was just looking more like, I was looking more at classic songwriters who, you know, write songs about love a lot, which is something I don't really do. But those open-ended, like Cole Porter songs or something, there's a few little details that really stab you. And then it's open and sing-songy and, I don't know. It's like beautiful Polaroids or you know how a lot of times you'll see a trailer for a movie and it doesn't give you the story, but it gives you an idea of the story and it seems really compelling and you really want to go see it. And then you go see it and the movie's really a disappointment. So I'm kind of a big fan of the trailers personally (laughs) because you can kind of decide what happens. You see the interesting parts and then it's kind of yours. Like I'm the kind of person who goes to the movies and I like to get there early to see the trailers. Do you think a lot about like which details to include, which not to include, or is it sort of intuitive? I, I realize it's different with every project like it is with all artists, but like just sort of in general, do you struggle with like the cutting room floor, I guess would be the way to put it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are ideas in the beginning that I'll be really married to and just have to completely cut them out at the end. In order to to make something that's truly yours, at least in my experience, you really have to push an idea. And you have to push it till it's kind of uncomfortable. And, you know, I went to art school for a long time, and I think that's the main thing I picked up there is you push an idea, A, and B, at the end, you, you ask yourself, you know, does this particular piece of work, be it a song or a painting or sculpture or whatever it is, say to my audience what I was trying to say or ask my audience what I was trying to ask? And if you can kind of get within like 80% of that, it seems like you're kind of there. But I mean, it doesn't always work, obviously. I take a lot more time than a lot of people do to finish things. So I go down a lot of rabbit holes and I live with things for a while just to make sure that I'm okay with those things, which can be a a money pit sometimes. But I don't know how long I'm going to get to make records. So I want to make sure... I do a good job and I pay for them myself. So I have the luxury of being in charge of that. You know, I I hear songwriters like, I'm just a vessel for the idea. It comes to me. No, you're not. It's work. And it is experience, selection, uh, taste. Like none of those things are just something that happens to you. You're not just an antenna. So you worked on this album. It's been five years since your last one. So, And you mentioned that you like to work on things for a while. Tell me about the process of 
making this album, just sort of how long it took and like what you were kind of digging into as you made it. I started making this record when I was working with Katie Lang and Laura Veers on the Case Lang Veers record when we were writing that. And then going through the new pornographer's record cycle and I, I finished my degree in there. I had some some work to do because I don't know how I don't remember how many credits short I was in 1997 when I was or 98 when I was supposed to graduate but it had been bugging me all these years so I finished my degree and then what's your degree in it's fine arts there was a lot going on but there was something about writing with Case Langveers where I had to give up a lot of control because normally Laura and Katie and I separately are you know in charge of our whole deal and make all the decisions and so in this project, we were going to write songs from the ground up with each other and uh, be very democratic about it. And, you know, that was a really hard thing to do, to let go. You know, th- there were hard moments and stuff, but at the end of the day, the record sounded really good and, and we toured it and it was so much fun. And I don't know, there was a relief in letting go of control and a relief in trusting other people to help you, which is something I, you know, have done, but I didn't realize how far you could trust people and let go. And so that was a real eye-opener, and it felt so good. And then I went to uh, the first-ever women's producers conference in Brooklyn, New York, which is crazy considering that women have been there at the beginning and the birth of every technology, yet there had never been a conference of female producers in the entire history of human (laughs) existence. So... uh, I went to that, which was put on by Kayla Maricic and Melissa Dine of a band called The Blow. And they got this thing together on a shoestring budget. And there were women from all over the world, from all different backgrounds, from all different age groups. And, you know, we always say that representation matters and it really does. But I had this crazy double whammy kind of epiphany while I was there where I, we got to the to the green room in the basement, you know, we were all sharing the same green room and normally I'm pretty shy meeting people off the bat and I think everybody else that was there felt the same way, but we all just erupted into conversation. We did not realize how starved we were for dialogue with other women about our professions, that we are, you know, we're experts in our professions. We've been doing it for a long time and it just it was such a crazy thing to see the representation and be the representation in front of an audience a fully mixed audience of human beings men women young old from all different backgrounds and i left there feeling so unbelievably qualified and moved and it was just such a major thing and so i think i just showed up for this record feeling really present more present than i'd been probably ever and feeling relaxed and I trusted in the process and also I was ready to let go of more control so I got a hold of uh, Bjorn Yitling from Peter Bjorn and John to come and co-produce a few songs too because I thought that would really serve the songs and I wanted some new sounds because you know I tend to go to my go-to things that I like and it was really rewarding and everything I wanted to happen happened and I did a lot of research and that that kind of made all the difference and I definitely think I got that from Katie and Laura you know because they are such thorough researchers and they like to have maps of everything whereas I'm somebody who goes in and 
I'll have like a third of it mapped. And the rest of it, I kind of want to see what happens in the studio. I get a real thrill from that. So it, it was a lot of things happening, but it it felt so good. And I'm so glad that it happened that way. And, you know, everything, like I said, everything happened that I wanted to happen. And it did not happen in the way I expected it to every time. So that was another thing that was really exciting. It's like, well, it may not go the way you want, but you can always steer it or be amazed at what's happening or you know, just, just knowing that it's going to be okay because you've done it 10,000 times. So I, when I said like earlier sort of that I, I saw it as a meditation on, on, on womanhood at this, this moment in time and, and, uh, and you don't see it that way. But I do think like I don't know how to put this. It's an album that made me feel like what it's like to live in this period and in, in time when sort of these horrors are stacked up against like just the everyday beauty of life. And like I feel like it walks that line between – being mad at what's happening, you know, uh, in the world, uh, but also like taking time to remember that there are things you enjoy about life. And I'm wondering like how, if at all, you felt sort of the outside world trickling in as, as you made this album. I think I've always been mad and I think Mm. it's always shown up on my records. I think that it's more like the outside is changing so people can hear that now. Yeah. It's like, Oh, um, (sighs) And I'm not saying that it's changing for me, for my super important works of staggering majesty. <laughs> yeah. I just I just mean like, you know, it's people are becoming more aware and that myself included, like there's something about, you know, on one hand, like Trump will not be allowed in my recording. Like he's a blip and I'm not letting him into my world of creative anything. So people ask me if it's about the Trump era. I'm like, no, these things have been going on for a long time. And people have been talking about it for a long time. It's just that people haven't been listening. I don't really know how to describe that other than the social media thing has been good for learning how to listen. Like there was a lot of things I thought I knew. I don't know at all. But, you know, shutting up and listening to other people has been a really fantastic broadening growth experience that I really appreciate. You know, it's a way to discuss things that are really important, but you don't have to go to a classroom and discuss it academically from three sources point of view. You can discuss it from a million people's point of view, which is really an important thing. There are a lot of people in the creative fields who have not learned how to sort of sit back and listen on Twitter. And you're very active on Twitter and you have a, you have a great Twitter feed. Like how did you sort of get to a place where you were able to sit back and, and just, just sort of listen to other people tell you about their lives? I don't want it to sound like I'm giving myself some sort of award for being able to listen. <laughs> I should have done it a long time ago. And, sure, you know, I when when I think about it, I do remember hearing people say these things. I just didn't hear them in such a large chorus, so I didn't hear it as I should. I just started listening to, you know, there, there was a lot of complaints about white feminism, for example. And I've only just recently come around to being able to go, you know what, I really am a feminist. I really am. And so I had to do research on that and because... I didn't want to just jump into something that I didn't know what it was that didn't feel right. So it took me a long time to come around to that. And then, you know, to, to figure out what white privilege and 
white feminism was and listen to people, you know, black women, women of color, Native American women. Like it's been a huge deal. And the fact that people show up to try to, you know, educate people and let people know how they feel and what the realities are, despite the fact that they've been saying it for so long. Like, you got to honor people. You got to sit back and listen. You have to. And, you know, if we if we want things to go any better, you got to look at things like colonialism. Like, colonialism has everything to do with patriarchy, you know, feminist backlash and all these other things. Like, colonialism is kind of like the greatest system ever if you're a rich white dude. It's the greatest thing to ever happen. So, but we don't think about it that way. And there's this weird what America is thing that really isn't working. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a new podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show. That's me, Arthur Brooks, and I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm making a new podcast with Vox Media. Now, as president of AEI, that's a Washington think tank, I see bitter disagreement all the time. And it's terrible. We need some way to disagree, not less, but better. So this is a series that looks at the art of disagreement. The first episode is out July 12th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most of all, subscribe right now. So uh, it it's kind of a, a weird time for like musical genres, I guess. Like how do you define your genre if you do it all? Or like how do you feel about when people try to like put you in a genre if you're maybe a little less excited about that? Well, there are definitely things I like less than others. But <laughs> I also know that people writing about music or playing music on a radio show aren't anti-music. So if I had to write about 30 new bands a week and tried to find new English language for all of that, you know, to get across to people what they might want to hear, right. I, I couldn't do it. So I'm just grateful somebody's talking about it. You know, there are things that get under my skin and I'm like, Ugh. but at the end of the day, that's it's not that important. What, what do you like least? Alt country, which yeah. I don't. It sounds like alt right. It sounds kind of yeah. Nazi. I don't like it. I didn't like it before alt-right came along either, but alt-anything, I'm just, no. When it started happening, I thought, well, people were talking about alt-country because country music on Top 40 was so bad, but it's like country music itself shouldn't be punished for that, you know? And country music is one of those genres that people are really uptight about when it comes to any kind of innovation or stretching from mm. that. Like people don't think country music is something that can evolve to have, yeah. you know, the, the good parts of it move forward and combine with other things. Like people are very, very strict about letting country music become something in the now. Beyond just your solo records, you, you do stuff with the new pornographers. You did um, case Lang Veers. Like you do like sort of, record with a bunch of different uh, groups of people. And I'm wondering like what having those different experiences or different, different sort of musical uh, languages, like what that has sort of taught you that you fed into your own work. Well, they're also different. 
And the new pornographers specifically, that band has been around as long as my solo band. So I don't know one without the other. And, uh, you know, I was such a huge fan of Carl and Dan as songwriters that getting into that band was, it, it just felt like this beautiful event and opportunity I was given. I don't, I know, and I couldn't meditate on it. I'm like, I couldn't, I was, it was just too good. So I was just there to do it and to try to do a really good job. And so, you know, I don't write any of the songs for that band. I come in and I do the parts where, you know, Carl's like, okay, well, here's a backing vocal part. So I'll do that. And then maybe I'll make up some of my own parts or what have you. Like I haven't had to do the heavy lifting in that band. I get to show up for the super fun uh, Six Flags part of that band. And then we tour it. And, you know, I, I always know the record's way better after we tour because I'm not there for the for the giant process that is making a record, mixing a record, mastering a record, writing the songs. Like, that happens in my own band. So I know what it means, yet it's just all a lot of work and, and work that's really enjoyable and sometimes mind-numbingly dull but it's there and i don't know i think it's just it's just solidified the fact that if you want something done you got to do it and it's going to be a lot of work so you got to you got to really pay attention and sometimes i've been good at it and sometimes i haven't just depend on depending on what's going on in my life and then you know case lang veers it was such a nice opportunity to see how other people who are in charge of their own thing, get it done. And, you know, they work completely differently than the new pornographers do as well. Um, Katie and Laura are very similar in that they are, like I said earlier, they're very map heavy. Like they want to know everything that's going to happen in the studio and they want to be able to tell the musicians ahead of time. But, you know, watching their two disciplines happen in this one project was such a huge learning experience. And I definitely do a lot more mapping and a lot more research ahead of time, or at least yeah. I have done on this recording. You mentioned that you don't do a lot of songs about love, but I feel like this album and, and some of your others have had quite a few songs about when love is over, like when love is lost and sort of that space. What's interesting to you about writing songs about the end of something? I think it's more the mythology of something. Love is a strange thing that we 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 have these weird mythologies about it. All the great love songs from the past generally have to do with it succeeding and the euphoria and the, oh, the one person in the world for me, uh, the whole soulmate thing. And it's not really a reality for very many people. So we have really bizarre expectations that really screw us up. So <laughs> I think I like to uh, explore other avenues of what could possibly happen. And sometimes with, you know, I, I've definitely don't write like I used to. I definitely am not as woe as me with stuff like that because I don't know if, if like that can be a moment in the feeling of a relationship, but ultimately it's not the end of your own life. So not that I'm necessarily all about being absolutely true about everything because I, I like flights of fancy and mythology and folklore. So I'm just, I just am really ready to admit I don't have any idea what makes love work or not. Mm -hmm. 
So we're, we're headed into the end of the show, and I want to ask you about a particular lyric from Hell On that I, I just am blown away by and, and really love and have quoted many times too many people and tweeted out of context and all of these things. Uh, it's from the song Bad Luck, and it's in the bridge. It, it's, it goes, I died and went to work. Uh, and to me, that feels like uh, the process of getting up every single day. So I'm wondering, like, where that lyric came from, if you know at all, like, like sort of the process of finding that idea, because I think it's so smart in such a simple way. I think it just sounded funny to me, but it also <laughs> sounded incredibly true. Like when we, at least in my experience here in the United States, the end of what we perceive as the end of things is often just a shift. Like, mm -hmm. I'm going to die if something happens. You know, it's like, well, it's the end of that, so what choice do I have but to go forward and to go on? Do you feel that's a great space to write songs in? Because, uh, again, like, you know, sort of talking about the end of things, like, it seems like you do enjoy writing about. What happens when humans are sort of forced to move on? Well, I would say in most situations, yes, in the situation of being depressed, it's not a fun place to write. It's not a good right. place to write. I've done it and mm -hmm. I'm sure it helped me, but you know, it wasn't, you know, when you're, when you're really depressed, it, it's not, nothing really relieves you. There are moments mm -hmm. where you can kind of use some escapism to get out of your own life. And that's just my particular experience. Like mm -hmm. everybody who experiences depression experiences it differently. Um, there, you know, sometimes there are similarities and people will say that really speaks to me, that particular thing. But yeah, I, I think, you know, we get pretty uh, dramatic <laughs> about the ends of things yeah, or what we see as the ends of things as yeah. human beings. So we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you those. Uh, what's like the last uh, pop culture thing you did, whether it's like a movie you saw or an album you listened to, a book you read, and uh, what did you think of it? I went and saw The Incredibles 2 with my bandmates mm. on our day mm. off. Yeah. And I thought it was really good, except for it was too obvious who the villain was. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could I was kind of bummed about that. I was like, come yeah. on. But, you know, it was really fun to watch and I did love watching it. What is a song somebody else wrote that you wish you had written? Or a couple of them, if you have a few. There's a million of them. Most recently, I think I there's a song by Big Thief called Paul that I was mm. listening to while I was running and I started to cry. And I was like, it's so well written. And then uh, Sleep All Summer by Eric Bachman, who has been one of my bandmates, uh, and he was kind enough to let us record it on the record. So that was a win-win, hopefully. But, yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of people have recorded that song, but I was like, come on, Eric, people love that song. Let's just do it again. And he said, okay. And people have been very responsive about it, and that makes me really happy because I believe in that song so hard, and Eric is such a great musician. So... That was a real that was a real thrill that he let us go back in yeah. and record it again. Yeah, it's a great song. Musician you've learned the most from living or dead that you've never met. It can be like Beethoven. Can, can I be like can I do a combo of two people? Yeah. Combo okay. of two's great. It'd be like a combo of Nina Simone and the Sugar Cubes, I think. Interesting. Why do you say them? Well, Nina Simone 
I love her music, but seeing her perform in film clips, she is the most unafraid performer. And I was always totally shaken and amazed at her intensity and how she would perform looking directly into the camera without breaking her gaze at all. And there was something about, you know, obviously she's this incredible musician. And there's one clip in particular, and I don't know where it was from, but it's her and her band. And she's looking directly into the camera, singing Mississippi Goddamn. And, you know, she's in charge of these men who are these incredible master musicians. And she's looking into the camera and... It's it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. And I think about it all the time. And I think about how knowing and living and believing a truth and just being unwavering about it and not caring what people think or what's going to happen if you speak that truth, it's a really, really powerful thing. I don't know what she felt. Maybe she felt a lot of fear. I don't know. But I wouldn't get that from watching her. It just seems like this it's it's the work of a master who is completely in control of their discipline and completely able to use their passion as the engine for that discipline. And it is the most gorgeous power source you can ever see. And then the sugar cubes, just their freeformness. And I love, like, this is going to sound really condescending, and I don't mean it that way. The English as a second language poetry writing is one of the most beautiful ways to flip English into a different place. And I, I think I got a lot of inspiration about not being weird about poetry because I didn't know anything about poetry to begin with, except that I like it. Like, I never finished English 101 in school. So not knowing, and, you know, now that I've been to most Scandinavian countries, you know, their education system is so good, they actually speak English far better than we do. <laughs> so <laughs> saying that it's English as a second language for them is is just actually just ignorant on my part. The way they use the English is so beautiful. It's more of a, an artistic moment. It's not so structured, yeah. yet it's really yeah. has this incredible energy. And so I think about Nina Simone and the Sugar Cubes quite a lot. Well, Nico, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with the rest of your tour. Thank you so much for having me. The album is Hell On, and it's on Spotify and everywhere else. Well, you know, I'm a man. That's what you raised me to be. I'm not an identity crisis. This was planned, but I'm also the executive producer and host of I Think You're Interesting, Todd Vanderwerf. My producer is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio is Nushak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. This week we recorded Nico in the Washington, D.C. Vox Media Studio. I was in the Rebel Talk Network Studio in Los Angeles. And my recording engineer here in L.A. was William Broughton. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever fine podcasts are sold. It helps us get the word out about the program. We really appreciate it. 
can email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show at ITYI.podcast at Vox.com. Itye.podcast at Vox.com. And you can always tweet at me at TVOTI Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with another person from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture, somebody who I think is interesting. But until then, I died and went.